Good morning. Oh, yeah. Every time I'm here, the, war the welcome is just a little bit warmer, and that feels good. You know, it's good to feel like you're making inroads into a community. Uh, we're going to be in Luke 23. I'll have the texts on the screen as I read them, but I'll be in a few other texts as well. So it'd be good for you to have your Bibles and have them open. Uh, there is a movie you may be familiar with called Taken, uh, and it follows a very simple plot. Uh, basically, there is this man who has a, an adult daughter who goes on a European vacation and ends up getting abducted, thus the title Taken. Uh, while the kidnappers are breaking into her apartment, she phones her dad on her phone. Apparently, she has some European-American compatible phone plan uh, and is trying to get coaching from him as to how to handle the situation, but ultimately, she ends up being taken uh, but she doesn't hang up the phone before that happens. And so the, the phone call is active, and one of the kidnappers picks up the phone. And this is the conversation that this girl's father has with the kidnapper as he is leaving with his daughter. He says, and I'm not going to do Liam Neeson's accent, but I, I hope that the weight of the lines hit nonetheless. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you are looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills, skills I have acquired over a very long career, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Very appropriate illustration for a Mennonite church as we <laughs> begin... But the part of that line in particular that I want to draw your attention to is where he says, I have a very particular set of skills. This is the father in the story, Liam Neeson's character, is a retired CIA operative, and so he has a lifetime of these very particular skills that make him a very appropriate hero for this very particular situation. And the reason that I start by, by raising those things is because sometimes we know we are in particular predicaments that require a particular kind of hero. And the scriptures unveil for us a story that tells us that we are in a particular kind of situation. And maybe that's a situation you are well aware of. Maybe it's a, a situation that you are not as aware of. But the story of the scriptures unfolds in a way that begins with God creating humanity good to know him and love him and live as he has created them to live. But very quickly, the story takes a turn and all of humanity collectively in those who first represent us, rebel against God and his good design and are left in this particular problem. How can we be restored to life with God when we are guilty of rebellion against him? That's the story that the whole scriptures are telling. That's the particular problem that we find ourselves in. And the text that we're in today shows Jesus to be the very particular savior that we need to solve our very particular problem. And so as we move through the text, I'm basically going to work through the story as Luke tells it, and then arrive at a couple of conclusions about the particular kind of Savior Jesus is at the end. And so we're going to see this one main idea, that Jesus died as an innocent substitute. That is his particular set of skills for our particular problem, that he is an innocent substitute. So we're going to begin, I'm just going to work very slowly, piece by piece through the text so that we can kind of feel the story as Luke tells it. So we're going to begin in Luke 23, verse 13. And here we read, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. 
So we, we pause here so that we can think about where we're at in the story. Pilate isn't just assembling a random group of people. There, there is something that has been unfolding and going on that leads him to reconvene this group. So in the sections leading up to ours, Jesus has been arrested, and he was tried first by the Jewish religious leaders, a group that Luke simply refers to as the council earlier in his story that he's telling. And what these people are trying Jesus for is because he claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be God in the flesh. And that's a true statement for Jesus to make. He is, in fact, God in the flesh, the very son of God. But this council doesn't believe him to be so. So the charge that they have found him guilty of earlier on before our section is the charge of blasphemy, saying something untrue about God, saying something which dishonors God. And yet at the, at the outset of when Pilate gets injected into this larger story that Luke's telling, they have brought Jesus forward on an altogether different charge. They brought Jesus to Pilate then saying that in fact, that what this man has done wrong is he has misled the people according to his teaching. So they find him guilty of blasphemy, but they bring him to Pilate on a different charge. And the reason that they're doing that is because the charge that they had against Jesus, that they thought he was guilty of, was one that in their tradition had a death penalty associated with it, but they did not have the judicial power to actually bring about that penalty. They found him guilty. They believe he should die, but they aren't able to actually make him die. But they know if they bring him to the Roman Empire on their charge, the Roman Empire is going to say, ah, doesn't really matter. Not something that we're concerned about. So they bring him on a different charge, one that would be very much a concern to the Roman Empire. And this is where we get introduced in a significant way to Pilate. And so it's helpful for us to think about who Pilate was and what he did as we think about how Luke is putting this whole picture together. Pilate was the governor of the region that these things were unfolding in, the events wherein all of Jesus' ministry had happened. Pilate was a, a governor appointed by the larger governing Roman Empire. Uh, Pilate did not like the place that he was over top of, and he did not like the people that he oversaw. We get that in a number of different historical documents. Uh, the whole dynamic of a ruler not really liking their people is a weird one for us, uh, because our politics kind of revolve around large popularity contests in a lot of ways. People need to appeal to those whom they want to lead in our day and age, because otherwise they're not going to get elected. Uh, but this was a very normal dynamic to have appointed leaders. Uh, there's a Christmas movie that m- my wife and I really like. It's called Klaus. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a really delightful animated Christmas movie. But it basically revolves around the story of this entitled postman, guy who works at the post office named Jesper, who is uh, lazy and incompetent and all of these kinds of things. And so as a punishment, he gets sent to manage the post office in Smirensburg, which sounds like exactly the kind of place the name suggests. He goes there, the people don't like him, they don't send a lot of mail, Uh, there's a lot of conflict and hatred brewing in this city, and so it's kind of, the whole story unfolds as Jesper deals with these Smirensburgites and doesn't really like the whole dynamic that's going on there. This is very similar to the situation of Pilate. He's in charge of governing this area, keeping the peace, but he does not like the people and he does not like the place. We read actually in other places, uh, he had a vacation home elsewhere that he liked to spend a lot of his time. 
So he really was not a fan of these kinds of things which are going on. And so it's thus unsurprising that in the text you looked at last week, Pilate shuffles Jesus' case off to Herod, another local ruler, one more directly connected with, with Jewish affairs. But now he has uh, reconvened all of the people because Herod has sent Jesus back to Pilate, evidently finding nothing wrong with him. So it's at this point that we enter our story. Pilate reassembles those who have accused Jesus to deliver his own verdict after Herod has given his. And so in verses 14 to 16, we read Pilate's verdict. Pilate said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. So what is Pilate's verdict? You have found him guilty of something, but we certainly do not. It's stated in no uncertain terms. But look what else Pilate says. I will therefore punish and release him. You note that contrast. He's not guilty, but I'm going to punish him anyways. And so we don't know if Pilate was going to plan on punishing Jesus uh, to warn Jesus in case Jesus did go on to do some troublemaking kinds of things in the future. We, we don't know if he was going to punish Jesus in order to try and slightly appease the, the religious leaders and the people who had brought Jesus to him. But in any case, Pilate's statement of Jesus's innocence comes to us three times in these three verses. He, he reiterates again and again quite clearly, and Luke recounts these layering of statements of innocence. This is Pilate's verdict. Jesus is not guilty. And this doesn't surprise us because Pilate had already declared Jesus not guilty even before he had sent him to Herod. So now what we have are uh, Pilate's first declaration of Jesus' innocence, Herod's declaration of Jesus' innocence, by the way, he didn't do anything to him when he was sent, and then Pilate's triple statement, again stating Jesus' innocence. So, so Luke is layering this story together. It's very clear. Jesus has not been found guilty of anything. But obviously, though this kind of clear statement by the governor would normally be the end of the matter, these Jewish people are not satisfied. And so the story continues to escalate as we read in verses 18 to the start of verse 23. They all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. Right? All of those who, who Pilate has regathered, religious leaders, local rulers of the people, and a crowd themselves are dissatisfied with his decision. And so they, they grow louder and more urgent in their demands, in their restating of their conclusion about Jesus. And Luke notes that they actually cry out for an exchange. They want to take Barabbas, who we'll see and, and think about more in a moment, but who is actually a guilty criminal, and they want him released and Jesus kept in custody. And ultimately, they want Jesus 
crucified, we see in the text. But before we get too far into thinking about that, there's another detail that I want to draw to your attention. You may have noticed, maybe you didn't, that your Bible skips verse 17. Uh, there was probably a footnote at the bottom that says some later manuscripts include verse 17. And verse 17, if you have it in the footnote there, says something to the effect of uh, there was a, a custom at the time for Pilate to release one prisoner and, and grant basically the, the people what they wanted, right? Uh, Matthew, Mark, and John and their accounts all include that verse. But it seems like that wasn't part of the original story as Luke had wrote it. It was a later addition, it seems. Why, though, would Luke decline to include that? Why might he not include that kind of a little detail? And I think it's because he's trying to be very clear about what it was that the crowd and these Jewish people were actually doing. They weren't just taking advantage of a convenient social custom at the time. They were demanding what they really wanted. They really did prefer Barabbas to Jesus in that moment. It wasn't just that this is something that was available to them, so they capitalized on it, but, but Luke is trying to show you the heart of the people who are rejecting Jesus. They preferred Barabbas, who was the kind of prisoner that the Roman Empire really would be concerned about. He was a violent guy, participated in an insurrection and a murder. And he, he's a real big problem if you're trying to keep the peace in a volatile region. And yet this is the one whom the crowds insist on having released to them instead of Jesus. And there are a couple of really significant things about why Barabbas is the perfect kind of prisoner for this sort of exchange. The first is that his crime is one that would have been worthy of death. That, that would have been his sentence by the Romans. You've been part of an insurrection, you've been part of a murder, you get the death penalty. And you get the death penalty by crucifixion is typically the, the kind of death that that sort of criminal would die. So for the crowd's purposes, that's perfect. There's already a crucifixion being planned. We can just swap the guy who will be on the cross. But, but there's another reason why Barabbas is the right kind of criminal for this kind of exchange. And it's because in, in many ways, he is emblematic of the kind of savior that many Jewish people would have been expecting. They would have wanted someone who came as a warrior king, willing to do whatever it took to overthrow their major enemies at the time, the Roman Empire. And this is not to say they saw Barabbas as being that savior, but he is that type of guy when Jesus very much is not. There are all of these dynamics going on, but ultimately at the heart of this story is, is the crowds choosing between two different kinds of saviors. And the savior that you will choose depends upon the kind of saving that you want to happen, the future that you have in mind for you and your people. And again, this is a weird thing for us because we're very much in a democratic state of mind where it's difficult to imagine having such dramatically different candidates to get us where we want to go. But I'm going to use a very short sports illustration that doesn't require you to know anything about sports, so bear with me. We're at the time of year where uh, NFL teams, football teams, are evaluating the, the coming class of college graduates to determine who they're going to pick to join their team next year. They have them do all these physical competitions, run 40-yard dashes, do as many 225-pound bench presses as they can. Th this is kind of the evaluation that's happening. And so the worst teams from last year 
get the chance to choose the best players from this year's draft. That's how the system works. And so these are teams that were bad last year, and so they're thinking about where do we want our team to end up in the future? Where are we going as a franchise? And so they're going to pick players that are going to push their franchise in a direction that they want to go. And sometimes the choice that you have presented to you is two pretty starkly different options. Uh, the, the draft that happened in 1998 is one of those places. There were two very good quarterbacks in the college, the last four years of the college uh, sports that year, uh, Peyton Manning and Ryan Leaf. And they could not have been more different guys, both awesome athletes. But Peyton Manning was studious, he was hardworking, he was mature for his age, all things which matter when you're going to give a guy in his early 20s tens of millions of dollars. Ryan Leaf, awesome athlete, but he was arrogant, he was lazy, he was disrespectful to his teammates and his coaches, to the media. But, but you kind of are deciding between whether you want the, the clean-cut guy or the guy who has a bit of an edge to him. How is it that you want your team to turn out in the future? And ultimately, that decision, if you know anything about sports history, turned out very well for the team that drafted Peyton Manning and extremely poorly for the team that drafted Ryan Leaf. They both went on to do exactly the kinds of things you would expect them to do. But that's the situation this crowd is in. And as they cry out for Barabbas' release and for Jesus' crucifixion, we see what they really want. Pilate, who would have been used to his judicial decisions, landing and being the law of the land, is confronted by a crowd who knows exactly what they want, and it's not what he sees as being the right decision. So the story escalates as Pilate continues to state Jesus' innocence. You can almost hear his exasperation as the, the, the tale continues to unfold. So, so what happens that ultimately turns the tide? Well, well, we read in the second half of verse 23. Their voices prevailed. The crowd continues to clamor for Barabbas to be set free and for Jesus to be crucified, no matter what is said. And it's at this point that the scales tip for Pilate. His decision is not received and their voices prevail against him. Uh, for a summer job, I used to coach soccer camps. And sometimes those camps would get uh, as big as about 120 kids out on a soccer field. Lots of volunteers, lots of other coaches. But a crowd of children that size, not always the easiest to convince them to do something that they're not particularly interested in doing. Uh, sometimes we would have a, a less experienced coach or maybe a coach with a quieter voice who would try and get the attention of all of those children as there are so many things distracting them out on a soccer field, bugs and grass and other kids and uh, sports equipment. All of these kinds of things draw their attention in all kinds of other places other than what this one coach wanted them to do. And there was nothing that some of those coaches could do to get 120 children under control. This is the case Pilate has found himself in, except if that's true for a group of unruly children... How much more should that be the case when it comes to a crowd of angry, committed, enraged adults? It's quite a startling scene that has happened here. And so it isn't surprising that their voices prevailed, as Luke tells us. And so what is Pilate's response? Well, in verse 24, he finally gives in. Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. See, it's at this point that Pilate ceases to be the sole voice of reason in this whole situation. And what we find out is that Pilate isn't actually that concerned in justice coming to bear on situations. 
Pilate is an advocate for justice only until it makes his job too hard for him to do. And then it all goes out the window and he gives in to these voices which have prevailed. So as we think about the situation, it, it makes sense as to why Pilate's priorities would not have been ultimately justice in the end. See, if the crowds were to riot and cause violence, Pilate would have been blamed by the, the people above him in the Roman Empire. And then if he responded with violence, bringing in Roman troops to kind of quash the violence and the rioting that may have broken out, he, he would have risked sparking a full revolt, a whole war by the Jewish people against the empire. That kind of a thing had happened before, and then he would be doubly on the hook. He, he would then be seen by the Roman Empire as the kind of leader who responds inappropriately to the situation before him. So it's far more expedient for him that an innocent man should die than he should get some job disciplinary action taken against him. Uh, I read a story about a bad babysitter who was watching a kid who, quote, was a biter. And instead of taking the, the parents' disciplinary paths that they had put in place, this babysitter decided that they would respond by biting the child back, but harder. Right? Like, this is really the dynamic that Pilate was faced with. Either I release, this, uh, I release Jesus and then have to deal with all of this stuff and it's not going to end well for me, or Jesus has to die so that I can keep the peace and keep my job and ultimately probably keep my head. This is the situation. He gives in because he would rather condemn Jesus than deal with all of the conflict that may arise. And so Luke summarizes all of these events for us in verse 25, where we read, he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. In a tragic turn of events, this Jewish crowd has turned into those who prefer a murderer to their Messiah and who want to murder their Messiah. That's how the story ends. In many ways, if we look at the, primarily at the Jewish people, if we look at Pilate, if we look at all of these different characters going on, this is, by all accounts, a really awful and tragic story. But, but ultimately, the scriptures are a story about Jesus, and so there are a number of things that Luke is weaving together into this tragic story that show us the kind of Savior Jesus is and the particular kind of salvation that he is able to bring. And so we're going to take some time to just think about those two realities. There's going to be two things about Jesus' death that are told to us in this story. Though he hasn't died yet as Luke is unfolding the story, there are still two things this text tells us about the death that he will go on to die. And the first is that Jesus died innocently. This is the note that rings out throughout our whole passage and the ones that come before it. His innocence is maintained as Pilate states and restates it in a number of different ways. But we should ask the question, why does it matter to us that Jesus was innocent when he died? Ultimately, his innocence is central to his mission because without his innocence, he actually is not able to be the particular kind of savior that you and I need. And, and there's lots of different reasons for that that we're going to get into. But I will note that in this context, in particular, the innocence that's being talked about is, is innocence on the grounds of the charge being brought against him, right? There's one charge being brought against him, and that is the one that he is being declared innocent of. But I think Luke layers and repeats these things together to show again and again and again that Jesus died though he was innocent. 
And that's a theological truth that's much larger than just one charge being brought against him. This was, in fact, the entire portrait. This is, a, this is a portrait of this coming Savior that is presented to us throughout all of the Scriptures, Old and New Testament alike. So, so we read this in Isaiah 53, verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked, speaking about God's coming servant who would save his people by his death, and with a rich man in his death, Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. See, Jesus was proving to be the anticipated Messiah, even as he was being rejected as that very Messiah. His innocence stood, and is a key proof that he is, in fact, the one whom God sent. But, but it's not just an issue of identity, that he has to be the innocent one in order to match the prophecies about the coming Savior. His innocence is also the basis of any salvation that he is actually able to offer guilty people. If Jesus isn't innocent, he can't save anyone. His death would just be the natural consequence of his own guilt if he wasn't innocent. But he remained faithful to his father's mission in every way. And so the salvation that Jesus makes possible begins far before his death. It also requires his perfectly innocent life. Do you think about Jesus' perfection in these terms? How it really does matter for you that he was perfectly innocent in all that he did. See, see there are all kinds of movements in our uh, modern versions of Christianity where people are going to try and make Jesus very, very, very relatable to you. To say that he understands and he got some things wrong, but he learned and he grew over the course of his life. But, but those aren't games that we can play with Jesus because ultimately our salvation depends upon his innocence being upheld. See, see, he's not just a good human teacher. He's not just a nice guy who got a lot of stuff right, but still struggled like we do. He is altogether different than us in some ways. And his innocence is one of those key Ways. It's an expression of his holiness, how he is at some level altogether different than you and I. Yes, he needed to be a human so that he could represent us as our Savior, but he also needed to be altogether different than us so that he wouldn't fall into the same guilt that we all fall in. And this raises a fairly important question, well, one that perhaps is helpful to answer from the outset, but I'm raising it here. Are we all, in fact, all guilty before God? Because if you reject that premise, you don't actually need the news that Jesus is offering at all. It doesn't matter to you if Jesus is innocent, if you are also innocent. And so we ask the question, are we all guilty? And the fairly simple answer of the scriptures is yes. And I don't actually think it'll be that hard for me to show you where we can find our own guilt in the scriptures. I'm, I'm going to take you to the Ten Commandments though there are a lot of other places that we could go to see our own guilt. The Ten Commandments were the foundational set of laws that God gave to the Israelite people after he had saved them from slavery in Egypt to be his chosen people, his representatives to the nation. They formed the foundation of what it meant for them to know God and live in life with God as he had designed them to live. So the Ten Commandments are really good foundational Things And the first commandment is the most foundational out of all of the commandments. The first of the Ten Commandments we read in Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. Simple. 
And that's one, maybe in your Bible reading plan as you move through Exodus, you read that and think, good to go. I don't have a shrine in my house. I don't, uh, I'm not an adherent of some religion other than Christianity, so, so therefore I'm good on this account. I have no other gods before God. And, and yet I think uh, that if we read it in a more deep way, not quite such a surface reading, we'll realize pretty quickly that in fact this is the commandment. We are all guilty of breaking probably more than any other commandment. Because ultimately, what this commandment is teaching us is that there is no one other than God who rightfully sits on the throne of your life. There is no one, no thing, nothing in all the, all the created universe that ought to take God's spot in your life. And yet, there are many things that we give priority to in our life over and above God himself. So I'll illustrate that from my own life. One of the things that I know that I tend to struggle with putting in God's place in my life is my performance in my work and my studies. And the reason that I can tell that that's something that I put right at the top of my life is that when those things are going well, nothing can touch me. I'm invincible. People can make fun of me. People I can say I look all kinds of funny ways. But if I'm feeling good about how I'm doing with my studies and my work, it doesn't matter. I'm good to go. It, it verifies that I have value and significance and purpose and, and meaning, that I matter. And when those things are going poorly, there is no encouragement, no reassurance that can bring me up out of that pit. And so the things that you allow to tell you the most important stuff about who you are, the things that you allow to, to drive the direction of your life, the things that you filter everything else through, those are the things that we make God and put in God's spot. So, so what are those things for you? Is it your job? Is, is the work that you do, the thing that you filter everything else in your life through, the thing that gives you purpose and meaning and identity, and when it goes poorly, is it the thing that plunges you into the depths of despair? Is it your bank account? The, the amount of stability and security and control over your life that you have. Is that what gives you your sense of purpose? Is it your children? The kind of mother or father you are. Is that the thing that determines everything about the rest of your world? And if you, if you can just be seen as the successful parent who produced successful children, then everything else can be all kinds of other ways. But as long as that's in place, I'm good to go. And if that falls apart, I have nothing left. See, see, we're all guilty of putting other idols in God's place. And when we do those things, we are as guilty of breaking the first commandment as these Jewish crowds were who were rejecting the very Messiah before their eyes, preferring a murderer to the Messiah. So the scriptures will tell us that we are all guilty. And we actually haven't arrived at the good news yet, right? No one is saved by recognizing that Jesus is innocent and recognizing that they are guilty, right? Those are two very true things, two very foundational truths. But those two things need to come together somehow. The recognition of our need for a savior because of our particular problem and the recognizing of Jesus as being that particular savior have to come together in a saving kind of way. And I think Luke also illustrates that with the way that he tells this story as well. 
We see it in the way that Jesus died for others. Uh, Jesus' death is shown to be a part of a great exchange in our story. Jesus, the innocent Messiah, is exchanged for Barabbas, the murderous insurrectionist. That, that is the exchange that Luke is talking about, right? Barabbas is the one who is guilty of death, and yet he is the one who is able to walk free because Jesus, the innocent one, died. It's that kind of exchange which Luke is presenting to us, but he also indicates it to us in some subtle details in the text, in particular to the na- by, by his use of the name Barabbas, right? This was the guy's actual name, but it also means something. The, the first part of his name, Bar, means son of. The second part of his name, Abbas, you can see Abba in there, father. So what we have in this story is the exchange of two sons of the father. One who is the guilty son of the father who has actually done the criminal things deserving of death. The other, the innocent son of the father. And as we begin to reflect on those kinds of realities present within this exchange, what we are reminded of is that, in fact, the scriptures will tell us that everyone, at one level, should be considered a son of the Father, because all are created by God in his image. We all have God as our Father at some level. And yet, we are also those who are guilty of rejecting him as our Father and walking in all kinds of different ways. And so we, the Barabbases of the world need the exchange that Jesus, the true Son of God, offers to us. How does that happen? 2 Corinthians 5.21 is one of the most pointed and powerful verses in the whole of the Scriptures. We, We read this there. For our sake, He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus the Son, to be sin who knew no sin. Why? so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the exchange offered to each and every guilty sinner if they will receive it. That that Jesus became sin for us. That he took upon himself all sin, bore the penalty that all sin requires in his body hanging on the cross. And that what he offers to us instead is the righteousness of God. Of God. He takes our guilty standing with God upon himself on the cross and gives us his perfect standing with God because he is the perfectly righteous son of God. And with that righteousness comes life and life abundant. Because that restored relationship with God is the foundation for every other good thing you could ever want or dream of that God will provide. It all begins with being seen as righteous in God's sight. So no matter what idols you have turned to or continue to turn to in the present, right? Another way of saying that is whether you've known Jesus for a long time or whether you've never turned and trusted him before, the exchange offered to you by by Luke as the Holy Spirit speaks through him to you right now in this text is to receive the righteousness of God Because Jesus bears the penalty your sin deserves as your innocent substitute. Uh, What does that show us about the kind of savior Jesus is? Yes, the, the, the facts are important. The objectiveness of the exchange 
matters. But, but it also shows us something really beautiful and compelling about the particular kind of Savior that we have. I'm going to turn your attention to Romans 5 as we think about why the Father would send the Son to enact this kind of exchange with undeserving sinners. Romans 5, verses 7 and 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good good person one would dare even to die. Right? We have stories about one person dying for another. But God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's love that we see in this passage. Though Luke never uses the word, this exchange is the expression, the chief expression of God's love for his children who are wandering and rebellious against him. It's because of love that he creates a way for for those who are far off to be brought near, for those who are guilty like Barabbas to, to be made alive with the life that only Jesus deserves, but that he shares willingly with all who will turn from their idols and trust him. Do you want to know what God thinks about you when you struggle with sin? See, sometimes when we deal with our own sin, we're unsure of what that means God thinks of us in the present, right? We think he gets angry with us because when we look at other people who do things wrong against us, we get angry with them. And so we project that vision onto God. But Romans 5 and the rest of the scriptures paint a different story. If you have trusted in Jesus, when God looks at you and your struggles with sin, he still looks at you with love. Because he sees Jesus when he looks at you. Because of this great exchange which has happened. And so that is the encouragement that we need to turn to this Jesus and to trust in him. And to trust in the Father who sent him. Is that he does all of these things not because of anything we merit in and of ourselves. But he does them because of his great love for us. He suffered innocently a death he did not deserve. So that you could have life that you don't deserve. And that's an exchange that he offers to you freely. So great is his love for you. And this is a message that we need. That Jesus died as an innocent substitute. And it's a message that we need whether we've been a Christian for decades or you haven't actually ever turned and followed Jesus before. We all need to remember that in our sin and in our struggles with that sin, that Jesus is always our innocent substitute who died that we might have life. So I'm going to pray for all of us to that end. And then we're going to turn in response. Father, this this scripture, this text that we have today is such a clear picture of the gift of the gospel. Jesus' innocence rings through on these pages and you present us with this glorious exchange seen through the lens of, of the swapping of Barabbas and Jesus. And so, Father, what we need is for you, by your Spirit, to take this truth and push it deep into us so that we look at our sin in a different way, that it is actually a great lie that we have believed. When we think when we turn to these things, we'll find life. What we need, Father, is for you to show us how actually real life is found in this exchange, wherein we receive the righteousness of God as Jesus takes our sin upon him. And Father, I want to pray in particular, if there are those in this room uh, who do not know you yet 
in that way. God, I ask that you would draw them by your spirit to know that this is what they need because this is what we all need. We need to know that Jesus is our innocent substitute every single day of our lives. So we pray this in Jesus' name by the Spirit's power. Amen.